Hey everybody, welcome to This Good Word, episode 26. The word this week is shalom. Or as a friend sent me this picture, he was in Jerusalem. Give it up for Stu G. Uh, He sent a picture that said shalom, y'all, which I love and I maybe need. Anyway, in these heady days, these crazy days of a presidential race in America that is going from the idiotic to the just unbelievable, of a refugee crisis in Syria, of tainted water in Flint, racism everywhere, I'm going to bring out an ancient Hebrew word that could bring some hope, and the word is shalom. It does mean peace, but it also means so much more than that. It means wholeness, completeness, friendship. It means fullness. So in our fragmented world, in our fragmented lives, I think we need an ancient vision that might just propel us into the future with some hope. I'm tired of living in fear. I'm tired of being led by voices that sound powerful but are just spewing fear. I'm tired of, tired of cowering behind dogmas and an energy that is all about reclaiming a power that was never generative to begin with. So let's talk about wholeness. Let's talk about shalom. So some questions just to kind of gauge ourselves. You know, like when you go to the doctor to get a checkup, they check your vitals, right? They check your pulse. They check your blood pressure and they ask you questions and all that stuff. Let's let's do that for a second just to get a sense of uh, what kind of wholeness we are living in or not. So how do you wake up in the morning? Are you tired? Uh, is the first thing that stabs into your heart and brain chaos and anxiety about what's coming up for the day? Are you immediately flooded with worry and a sense that, man, the first, you know, like, have you ever woken up and the first thing you think about is, when can I take a nap today? (laughs) Or like, you know, how many days till vacation or all that stuff? Um, Or do you wake up with a sense of calm and a sense of joy, a sense of optimism, uh, a sense of slowness, even if you have quite a bit of things to do? And then how do you go to bed? Do you flop in bed exhausted? Um, Are you worrying about all the things that you haven't done or all the things that are happening tomorrow? Are you checking your email, the last thing you do on your phone when you go to bed? Um, Are you checking off the lists of the things you need to do tomorrow? Or are you uh, sort of graciously getting into bed, grateful for another day to breathe in and breathe out? Uh, are you uh, giving over the things that you couldn't finish today to God, believing that as you sleep in some mysterious way, uh, you can release those things to God's good care? They'll be there tomorrow, and they haven't been solved, but you're not going to carry with them with you into bed, uh, even if they're big. Uh, are you living with a sense during your day of joy, of being alive in the moment? Or do you find yourself, like most people, worrying about the things that you did and the regrets that you have, uh, and um, uh, or worrying about the future? 
uh, about the things that are coming up, about the energy you don't have to do them? Are you finding that you're living in a sense of abundance or enoughness? Or do you sense that you're always just out of balance? You're out of whack. You're doing too much. You're not focused. You're not sure where your next, you know, major burst of energy is going to come from. So you're finding yourself maybe hoarding energy and then spending it too much. Um, how's your exercise patterns and your sleeping patterns? Are you are you getting some good aerobic exercise on a regular basis? Are you resting? Are you taking breaks at work? Or are you just rushing all the way through? See. Like if this were a doctor's office, you know, just no shame, no judgment. I'm not going to know, but just be honest about those things. If when I, when when you strap the uh, the blood pressure uh, monitor to your arm, what comes up? And when you ask yourself these questions, what comes up? And this is all about wholeness, to be quite honest. And I think our world right now is fragmented and is running in fear. And there is an ancient vision that would call us back to something better. And it's time for the individuals in our world to stop waiting for some majestic, charismatic leader to lead us into it. It's time for us to take a look at what wholeness looks like in our actual lives and in the world and start making small decisions to work toward personal wholeness, cultural wholeness, societal wholeness, and friends, I just have this crazy idea that we can do it. Each one of us around the world. And this is what's crazy. I mean, you know, I feel some embarrassment, you know, talking about this, but this podcast is not this huge podcast, but it's listened to people in all 50 states and in many countries around the world. And I have this little tiny dream that this little tiny vision this little tiny word, shalom, wholeness, fullness, completeness, friendship, might organically, over time, make its way into the hearts of people. And I think there is a sense of urgency to this. There's a sense that, um, not fear-based urgency, like, you got to do this right now, but a sense of, this is our time. This is our time in our world to say no to anxiety, say no to fear and start to walk in wholeness. So to help us, I'm going to tell this ancient story found in the book of Genesis in the Torah. Uh, it starts in Genesis 37. It's a, perhaps my favorite story in all the scriptures, though it's hard to say that. But it's one of the stories that uh, gets played out over the course of 14 chapters. It's a long story in the scriptures. It's very long about one character. It's one of the longest uh, stories that, that we find continually going. And it starts with these words. These are the generations of Jacob. Now, Jacob, as you remember, is the grandson of Abraham, the father of both Islam and Judaism. We're going to follow the story of the Jewish children in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah. But Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau, these twins that fought in the womb. It was really interesting. And then have this massive and major fight uh, Esau sells his birthright for a cup of stew in this tragic story, and Jacob deceives him out of it, and so that's tragic as well. Jacob runs away. Eventually, they find 
some peace together, basically through the magnanimous forgiveness of Esau, who could have just slaughtered uh, Jacob because when they met, Esau had 400 of his soldiers. He had become a very uh, wealthy person, person of major influence, and he decided to forgive Jacob. Anyway, Jacob settles, and he has a bunch of sons, but there's this very weird reality that we read right in Genesis 37, verse 2. And it says, these are the generations of Jacob. And then it goes right to Joseph. It says, these are the generations of Jacob. And then it says, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing his flock with his brothers. Now, okay, Bible nerds and people nerds, normally when you read a genealogy of a major figure like Jacob, what do you see, right? You see his sons from the oldest to the youngest. So when we read his genealogy in Genesis 37, verse 2, what's there's this glaring error. Missing are all of his older sons, who are really the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob gets his name changed to Israel. So these are the sons of Israel. This is the line of God's people in the world, right? This these are the generations of Israel. It's so fascinating that it goes right to Joseph, who was not the oldest. Joseph, we read right here. This is the hint. This is the wink. This is the nod. This is the not so subtle, but it's so easy to miss. Uh, promise in Genesis 37 that Joseph is going to be the heir to the promise He's going to be the one that sustains the line of Israel. He's the key to this story that's already been unraveling. So if you remember in Genesis 12, God says to Abram, who really doesn't know much about God, he says, leave your land, leave your, uh, leave your family and go to a land that I will show you. And then he says, I will make your name great, which means you're going to have a lot of descendants and you're going to be a great patriarch. And uh, he says that your children, your descendants will bless the entire world. They will be, they will get blessed by me, by God, so that they can be a blessing to the world. That's the Abrahamic covenant. That's the covenant that God signs and seals with Abram, who later becomes Abraham, who has a son named Isaac. And Isaac sort of fumbles his way through life. We don't read much good that comes from Isaac as an adult. And we read in later in life, he goes blind, which is just a spiritual way of saying that he lost his ability to spiritually see. And he and his wife, Rebecca, have these two sons, Jacob and Esau. Of course, I just told their story. And so now it comes to Jacob to carry along the line. And it really is unraveling. And one of the things I want to just notice is that what does it mean that at the very beginning of the story of God's people that it's all unraveling? It's like there's this amazing freedom, I think, when we read that. we re When we read the story of God's people in the Bible right from the beginning, we read uh, that they are messing it up very badly. And I don't just mean like they're living in sin. I just mean they're making bad decisions. It's all unraveling. We're going to see in this story with Joseph that he and his brothers, I mean, the brothers, the sons of Israel are going to be filled with hatred for one another. 
They're going to sell Joseph into slavery. It's not going well. And when I, when I say that there's some freedom as we read this, I mean there's hope for wholeness for us, even in the middle of the greatest chaos, tragedy, hatred, and unwholeness. There is hope. Because that's how God's people started. And so in your world, if you wake up frantic, if you go through your day frantic, if you go to bed exhausted, if you said, man, you know, my RPMs are running way too high, I'm nowhere near wholeness. I'm nowhere near a sense of fullness or, or completeness. Take some hope, my brothers and sisters, because the story of God's people is the story of a people who fumble their way through life. And God continually pursues them and continually calls them back to wholeness, continually makes all things new. God does God's best work, I think, when we cry out and say we are lost in a sea of craziness, anxiety, fear, incompleteness, and we need some help. So this story it's interesting. We read in Genesis 37:3 that Jacob slash Israel loves Joseph the most. So right in the beginning, also, I mean, you parents, like, you know, we say, ah, we don't have favorites, but it says right there in the scriptures, the grandson of Abram, who becomes Abraham, plays favorites. He loves Joseph more than anybody else. We don't know why he loves Joseph more than all of his other sons but we read very clearly that he does. And so in Genesis 37, 4, we read, when his brothers, Joseph's brothers, saw that Jacob loved Joseph more than them, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, on the, on the, on the surface, that sounds very obvious. Like, right, this is just brothers, they're fighting. I mean, my sons, my three sons fight all the time. They never speak peaceably to each other or rarely they speak peacefully to each other. So on the one hand, you can say that this is just normal. These are brothers doing what brothers do. But the word for peacefully there is shalom, which is dripping with meaning. It means that his brothers could not be at wholeness, at completeness, and fullness uh, and friendship with Joseph. The sons of Israel could not be in a whole relationship with the person that was going to lead Israel to their future and actually eventually going to rescue Israel. And when I say Israel, I mean the people, God's people, out of famine. And so again, shalom means completeness, soundness. It means welfare. It does mean peace, but it means friendship. It means wholeness. And some of the commentators that I read this week in studying wholeness say this, pursuing wholeness or shalom, pursuing shalom means discovering ways of bringing people together while celebrating cultural and religious differences. And so these brothers of Joseph, because they were blind with jealousy probably, and because they weren't getting the love that they needed from their father, Jacob, they could not pursue shalom with Joseph. They couldn't find ways of bringing each other together while celebrating their differences. 
And so uh, the hatred bubbled and brewed more and more when it comes time. So uh, uh, Jacob sends his brothers off to tend to the flocks, uh, his sons, excuse me. But he keeps Joseph behind to do his own work, I think because he, he saw the hatred that was bubbling and boiling and he didn't know what to do about it. But there comes a time in Genesis 37, 14, when Jacob says, says to Joseph, he sends him out. He says, go, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and then bring me word. And this word for well is, of course, shalom. It, so in this sense, Jacob, the grandson of Abram who becomes Abraham, is saying to Joseph this crazy phrase, I want you to see to the shalom of your brothers. I want you to see to the welfare of your brothers. I want you, the one who is hated by your brothers, to see if you can find a way of bringing them together, even while celebrating your differences. And I don't know if this 17-year-old, this Joseph, knew all that Jacob was calling him into, but I think Jacob did know. I think Jacob knew exactly what he was sending him into. I think he probably did this with tears and with lots of fear, knowing that he was sending his son out into danger to see if he could find a way to bring wholeness. I want you to pause and sense the theological significance of this. What does it mean when a father sends the son that he loves into harm's way to see if wholeness can be created in the world? I mean, does that sound familiar to any readers of the New Testament? What does it mean when a father loves a son and sends a son into harm's way so that wholeness might be made in the world? Can I get an amen? Well, Joseph goes and in Genesis 37, 15, we read a man found him wandering in the fields and he asks Joseph a question. And the question is, what are you seeking? And this is where the scriptures come alive. This is where the scriptures become things that happened, things that are happening, and things that will happen. Because what this man, this unnamed man, asks Joseph in the field, in the middle of his pursuit of his brothers who hate him so that he can see to their shalom, he asks what are you seeking? And this is one of the great questions of humanity. What are you seeking? And don't be too quick to answer this question, right? But let it ring around in your mind. Let it greet you when you wake up. Let it help you go to sleep when you're going to sleep. What is it that you, in this time, in this age, with your history, with your present, with your future, what is it that you're seeking? And I think it, you are compelled to be honest. And I think in my experience, you're going to come up with a whole list of questions. Maybe you're seeking rest. Maybe you're seeking calm. 
Maybe you're seeking a new job. Maybe you're seeking a new spouse. Maybe you're seeking a baby. Maybe you're seeking all kinds of things. I want to encourage you to drill all the way down to what's underneath your answers. You seeking a baby? That's awesome. That's totally understandable. What's underneath that? You seeking a spouse? That's great. That's great. That's a great desire. What's underneath that? You seeking fame? Great. You seeking the ability to write a book? Great. Uh, you seeking a new job? Great. You seeking a new place to live? Great. You want to move here, move there? Great. You seeking um, uh, the end to an addiction? Great, great, great. All those answers are great. There is no judgment on any of the answers, but I want to encourage you to dig a layer beneath every answer and ask yourself, what is it that you are seeking? In Genesis 37, 16, Joseph answers, and his answer is profound. He says, I am seeking my brothers. Now, on one level, it's not profound. On one level, his dad told him to go find his brothers. So on on one level, there's a 17-year-old answer that says, you know what? I'm seeking my brothers because my dad told me to seek my brothers. Okay, so that's a 17-year-old answer. But what about if the scriptures really are have happened, are happening, and will happen? And do you know what I mean by that? I mean, the scriptures, if they're alive, they're stories that really happened that, that and, and you can argue about that. You know, even as I say, really happened. Some of you are going, really? Did they really happen? Did Jonah really get swallowed by a whale? Did the person really get put into a pillar of salt? Did Eve really eat an apple? Was there really an Adam and Eve? And I just want you to suspend. Those are such good questions. I'm not going to try to answer those questions, to be quite honest with you, because as I read the scriptures, I feel and I think and I sense that there's something so much more rich than that. If the scriptures are stories about things in life with God that happened, that are happening, and that really happened, then at the time of this question, what are you seeking? We can wonder how Joseph might answer as a 17-year-old, as a 27-year-old, as a 37-year-old, as a 47-year-old, as a 97-year-old, as a 117-year-old, and we can get different answers because with every year of his life, with every experience in his life, and if you know the story, and maybe many of you don't, he ends up spending a lot of his life in prison, not for any reason, uh, not for any fault of his own. He gets blamed for things. He spends long nights in prison. He gets uh, blamed by a boss for seducing his wife when he didn't do it. And um, he ends up saving the world. I mean, it's just an amazing story. Uh, I, I would encourage you to just to read Genesis 37 through the end of Genesis. That's about 14 chapters, Genesis 37 through 50. And you're going to find the answer to this question is the same. I think it stays the same, but there's so much more. Genesis uh, 37, 16, when Joseph says, I'm seeking my brothers, I think he means he's seeking his brothers. But how we can read it is, what does it mean to see to the shalom of our brothers? Now, something interesting, this is the first time in scripture that this phrase is uttered, I am seeking my brothers. And it's a direct thread back to the story of Cain and Abel, when Cain murders Abel, and the question comes to him, where is your brother? And he says, am I my brother's guard? Am I my brother's keeper? And so when Joseph says, I'm seeking my brothers, it is actually a story that's going to redeem the Cain and Abel story. When Cain says, I'm not my brother's keeper, when he insinuates that, um, 
the Joseph story redeems that and says, actually, you are. Actually, you are your brother's guard. Actually, it is your responsibility to, your responsibility to see to the shalom of your brothers. So I want to pause in this story. And the story goes on to, to say many more beautiful things. Joseph continues to, and Joseph's not a perfect person, but he continues to break through adversity. He continues to love his enemies. And he continues to uh, be a person in Egypt that continues to be faithful to his calling of seeing to the shalom of his brothers. And he comes to a moment where he is, he is in is the second most powerful person in Egypt, the most powerful place on planet Earth. And his brothers come, they're starving, and he has the opportunity to either send them away to die, and he would be justified in doing so, or to forgive them and to provide food for them and, and to provide a new home for them. And at the end of a, a, a story of struggle and pain and grief and tears, and all of that is found in this story, Joseph comes to forgive his brothers. He comes to provide a place for them to live, and he comes to provide a way for them to survive when they otherwise would have died. And that's seeing to the shalom of, of his brothers. And in doing so, he sees to the shalom of the whole world at great personal cost. So let's ask some questions. First of all, what are you seeking? And again, don't be too quick to answer that question. What are you seeking? As you read the news, as you watch the news, as you wake up in the mornings, you go to bed at night, as you're worried about all the things you're worried about, as you make all the lists of the things that you need to get done, as you plan for vacations and as you do your work day, what are you seeking? And does it have anything to do with shalom, with wholeness, with completeness, with fullness, with friendship, with pursuing a way of discovering ways that people can be brought together while celebrating cultural and religious differences? Or are you working really hard to preserve something that is crumbling all around you? Maybe it's a belief system. Maybe it's a way of living that isn't working for you. What are you seeking? And then my second question is, who are your brothers and sisters? And this is also a radical question. Who are your brothers and sisters? And can, be, can you be willing to radically redefine who your brothers and sisters are? Can you see to the shalom of your brother and sister when your brother and sister are someone that you do not like? That's what Joseph had to do. He had to do it with his enemies. He had to do it with his brothers. He had to do it with Potiphar and, and the Pharaoh and Potiphar's wife, this employer that he had and his wife that seduced him. He had to keep redefining who it was that was his brothers and sisters. He had to keep expanding that circle click by click by click. So can you be willing to radically redefine who your brothers are? And I think this is where the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus talks about. It's a parable, but he tells the story of this person that's gotten beaten. He's laying by the side of the road dying and these two religious guys pass him by. 
And they didn't want to touch him because it would make them unclean. But this Samaritan, this person that's hated by the Jews, and that Jesus is a Jew, stops, he, he puts him on his donkey, he tends to his wounds, he takes him to an inn, he pays for his well-being, he sees to the shalom of this person. And the radical uh, invitation and confrontation in this story is that Jesus is saying that the two people that should have done it, the two people that understood the, the, the mission of God's people the most to be a blessing to the world, to, to see to the shalom of their brothers and sisters, failed to see this person sitting by the side of the road as their brother or sister. And that was the great sin of this story. They didn't see him as their brother. Instead, they, they decided that preserving this religious law was more important. And Jesus is subtly insinuating that they're missing the whole law anyway, because as any rabbi knows, when a person is in danger of losing their life, then all the other laws go out the window. I mean, that's what's amazing. And Jesus says that a Samaritan, a person that was hated and seen as a half-breed, half-caste, actually is the one that understands who his brother and sister is. So if you are seeking shalom in the world and in yourself, there are some implications, right? There are some things to think about. Number one, can you find shalom? Can you find wholeness, completeness, fullness, friendship in the radical incompleteness of the present tense? I think there's this tendency to believe that we're working for shalom, that we have to muscle through all this angst and energy of our life, and then one day we'll arrive at shalom as if it's a vacation or or the weekend or retirement that we work so hard for, and then we live in it. And I think that's to radically misunderstand shalom. When we understand shalom, completeness can come in the radical incompleteness of this present moment. And maybe that's the only way in which it actually comes. So can you find shalom in the radical incompleteness of the present tense when your kids aren't listening to you, when the work isn't done, when your boss just treated you as if you don't uh, deserve any kind of dignity, when you're raging at the world around you because it's unfair, when you're angry about uh, someone who betrayed you, when you're not getting the baby, when you're not getting the spouse, and I know it's like yeah, easy for you to say, no, it's not easy for me to say. <laughs> I do have a spouse and I do have kids, but there are so many things in my world right now that are lacking completeness, lacking fullness, lacking uh, friendship. If you are seeking the shalom of yourself and the world around you, I think we need to start being able to find shalom in the radical incompleteness of the present tense. Shalom is a process that starts now. There isn't a destination that you have to get to. It starts right now in the radical incompleteness of whatever moment that you find yourself in. So, friends, what are you seeking? Who are your brothers and sisters? And what small adjustments do you need to make like right now so that you can begin to move more toward wholeness and more away from this fragmented reality that's marked by fear and loneliness and hatred and jealousy 
and turfism. Is turfism a word? <laughs> I don't think it is. You know what I mean, though? Are you willing to press pause long enough to really define what it is that you're seeking? Are you seeking wholeness or are you seeking relief? Because they're two totally different things. Right now, Christians all around the world are in the season of Lent. I am, I've chosen to give up a certain thing in my world right now that speaks mostly to relief. And in the absence of going to that thing for relief, I'm starting to get curious about what's underneath my desire for relief. What is that about and where does wholeness fit into that? So I would say maybe Lent, if you're following Lent, and you don't have to, but if you're following Lent, it's a great, it's a great time to get curious about what are you seeking in the absence of this thing that you're, you normally go to. Maybe it's coffee, whatever it is, alcohol, uh, complaining, whatever it is that gives you a sense of it's lying to you, but you think it's going to give you a sense of completeness, but it really doesn't. It may be just... Maybe it's food. Um, it, it's it's giving you relief from some feeling that you're feeling. Lent is an opportunity to feel the feeling and get curious about what's underneath that because what's hiding underneath that is the opportunity for wholeness. But you have to find shalom in the radical incompleteness of the present tense. Hard, yes, but it's such an invitation because I think we all are longing to believe that a world is possible, that we can wake up not so fluttered and flurried with anxiety and fear about what's to come, where we can wake up with a sense that, yep, things aren't as they should be. Yep, maybe things are radically aren't as they should be, but you can live with a sense of completeness and wholeness in the middle of that craziness. You can go to bed having problems, having issues that aren't solved and maybe don't feel solvable. But you can find a way to rest in the completeness of the God who created the universe and who keeps it spinning and who is always at work making all things new, always at work pursuing wholeness, always at work looking for ways and inviting human beings into ways of bringing people together while celebrating their cultural and religious differences, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament is always making all things new and is always inviting us into new levels of wholeness. So my brothers and sisters, I want to leave you with that thought. Honestly, I'm not saying anything that's blowing my mind lately because recently I feel like to share with you one new thing that's blowing my mind every week is gets a little tiresome even for me. So it must be tiresome for you. I really, the more and more this podcast goes on, the more and more I'm loving it. You guys, there, I am, uh, the months of March and April are going to be such a rich month of me sharing my friends with you. I've lined up some people that I think are so amazing. They're, they're sharing their stories of hope, of, um, of what they're doing in the world to bring shalom. And it is, it is just, I can't wait for you to hear their stories. So many of you have called, have emailed me and told me, especially recently, that you love the conversation I had with Jen and Charlie Dean uh, titled Unraveled. I thank you for that. The more I get to know 
uh, what really is helpful to people, the more I, I just love this. I hope this podcast is helping you reclaim what's holy about your humanity. I hope it's helping you find yourself and find the God that is so radically for you. I hope it's helping you to walk into levels of freedom that you can really be both limited and limitless, that you can be human and holy, that you can be dust and breath. So my friends, my brothers, my sisters, let's work for the shalom of ourselves and and each other and our world because we are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together. Grace and peace, my friends.